Hello, friends. It's, it's hard to have an introduction after that uh, sappy video right there, right? Um, today, we're going to continue our series, uh, A Lasting Legacy. And as I do, uh, I'm reminded of a story I heard many years ago about a foreign exchange student from Japan who uh, lived in the States for approximately a year. Uh, and enjoyed the time with her American host home. And uh, as she was uh, about to prepare to leave, the evening before, the host home mom uh, took this girl and just said, hey, tell me what your experience has been. Like, has it been a good experience? And as she's seeking to learn from this young uh, Japanese girl, the young lady said, it's been fantastic. Like, it's been phenomenal. I've enjoyed uh, hanging out with you and, and with your family. Um, I've, I've enjoyed my school and all the things that we've done. I enjoyed going to church with you and all the times that we've traveled and done the different things. And she's, she said, there is one thing that I'm a little bit remiss by. And with a tear in her eyes, she said, I've really struggled to understand American Christianity. She said, because you always you know, went to church and y'all prayed at church and you sung at church and you would say that that was important. But she said, I've lived with you for a year and not one time have you prayed together as a family. Not one time have you opened your Bible together and I just leave and I'm sad and I'm a little confused because my experience and what I was hoping for was not what I thought it would be with a Christian family. I don't know about you, but when we think about leaving a legacy, I think we oftentimes confuse this idea of being a Christian with the American Christianese. Um, Just this idea that we go to church and therefore we're Christians. But the reality is, is there's far more for us. And so today, as we dive into week two of this series, A Lasting Legacy, I think it's easy for us to think about the message last week. And we think about Proverbs 127, which we learned that children are heirs from the Lord. And indeed they are. We learned that they are like arrows in the warrior's hand. And that's true. And they need to be sharpened and they need to be honed. And all those things are true. But we forget where the source of their teaching comes from. And we could say, well, it's God and his word. But the reality is, is it's actually you and I. And today, the focus on both of our campuses here in Wills Point and those that are joining us in Edgewood, let's give a shout out to Edgewood. It's good to have you all. Is drawing a circle around ourselves. And so today, here's what I want you to say. The message today is about me. So here we go on three. One, two, three. Today's message is about Okay, now here's the good news is that that means if you're sitting next to someone, they should not elbow you today. Um, They should not um, say, hey, write that down today. The message today is about me. It's about me. And so if it's about me, the goal is, is for us to ask the Lord, would you teach me? And what is it that he's going to teach us? Well, he's going to teach us from a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with us on both campuses. Um, If you're kind of new to your Bible, like, I don't know where Deuteronomy is. Um, It's in the Old Testament. And it's a part of what the Hebrews would call the Torah. It's the first five books. Uh, Likely Moses wrote those. And if you have your Bibles, you can go to Genesis, which is the beginning. Um, Exodus tells about um, how uh, the Exodus happened as Israel left out of bondage and slavery. And then you've got Leviticus, um, which tells you about how God intended to set up his priesthood and the temple and how they would run all of those things. Um, Then you get to um, Leviticus. Numbers. Numbers is uh, really a 
an evaluation of all that was happening and all the numbers in Israel and all the goods and services and people. And then you get to Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy uh, is a large part about how the nation of Israel to set themselves up under the direction and leadership of Moses. And so Deuteronomy chapter six is where we're gonna be. And we're gonna begin in verse four and we're gonna read it. And as we read this, this is the a Hebrew prayer or a very famous liturgy called the Shema. The Shema is, is a, a famous liturgy, liturgy that which would be recited early in the morning and their evening rituals. Um, it was also something they would celebrate in the feast and the, uh, throughout the year. This would be a part of those rituals, oftentimes ending even on Yom Kippur with this prayer. And the prayer begins in verse four where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It continues and it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Have you ever heard those words before? It continues on and it says, and these words in verse six that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, what's interesting is, is that you see this tucked in to, to a bit of a preface. The preface is um, the Lord commanding Moses that, hey, if you want the blessings of God, then you should keep my commandments. And what's interesting is, is that God, to the nation of Israel, he tied his commandments to blessings. The idea is, if you obey me, then you'll have long life. And if you obey me, not only will you have long life, but you'll have blessings. You'll have heritage. Your people will have land. They'll have protection on their borders. They'll have blessings, which means the spring and the fall rains. Um, they'll have fertile places in which you are enriched. And then not only that, you'll, you'll grow to be not only protected, but to be large in size. And you'll be an example and an heritage throughout the earth. Contrast, after this prayer, this liturgy that you and I just read, there's a warning to Moses and to the people of Israel. Hey, if you don't do these things, it won't go well for you. So really you see the contrasting view as the prayer ends and saying, hey, you need to make sure that if you don't obey, then the things that you will be blessed with, according to the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, land, people, and blessings will go away. So you'll no longer have a great heritage. Your land will be thwarted. You'll have enemies on your borders. They will attack. You will lose your land. You will lose your people. You will lose your blessings. And so interesting enough, the way that God worked with Israel is he tied all these things together into a relationship with him. Now, I will tell you that we're not the nation of Israel. And as a result of that, this particular prayer is focused on Israel, but it also is very applicable to us because of the New Testament work of God through his son, Jesus, which reconciled us, not by our works and not by our own doing, but by God's grace in our life, which then compels us to do these very similar things. Even as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And the only difference is, as he says, and with all your mind instead of might. The reality though, is he's talking about the whole person, which is the key. If this whole idea is about loving God, then let's look at it. Verse four says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
really to set the nation of Israel apart, one of the foundational components of that was for them to recognize that they were not to get caught into a pantheistic idea of multiple gods. They were not to get caught up with the Asherites or um, the Moabites or any of the Philistines or any of those on their borders. They were to resolve themselves to be searching after the one true God, the one who is the not only the true God, the one who said to Moses, I am who I am, but he is also the one who is one. Now, it's interesting because that's a difficult concept for many of us to acquire, particularly even for the Jewish people. But you see throughout God's word, even beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God said, let us make man in our image, there's a plurality. And so while there is one God, he exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is the architect of all that we see and know. Jesus is the builder and the Holy Spirit comes and lives within the house. And as a result of that, you see that Israel is beginning to learn that they are to have a monotheistic idea idea in the midst of a polytheistic culture. And so they are to have a supreme God who is one. And so this prayer starts in that way. But not only are they have one God, they are to have one devotion. And so if you have your Bible, you can make you a note there, one God, one devotion. And that devotion is to a supreme God, a deity in whom you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, what's interesting about that is that as we look at this idea, the Shema, we, we can oftentimes look at it and see all the things we are to do. We can think about how we're to teach this to our children when we sit, when we rise, when we come, when we go. And oftentimes the implication of this text is put on what we should do rather than who we should be. And so we can oftentimes get caught up in, okay, well, how am I going to teach these things at my house when I walk? How am I going to write them on the doorpost of my house, on the frames of my gates? And we get caught up in all the application of this, and we miss the fact that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and we shall love him with all of our heart, soul, and what? Might. Which then brings it back to, if this message is not about anyone else, it's about me, then the question you got to ask yourself is, how am I devoting myself to the one God? And is there something that's competing for his affection? And what is it? Because the reality is, if the commission to Israel is, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, then for us as believers, it is, here children, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, and love him with all your soul, with all your uh, heart, soul, and mind, Jesus says. Matter of fact, Jesus says all the law and the prophets hang on these commands. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 and 40. And so as a result of that, that's the question you got to ask yourself is, hey, how am I doing? And here's the deal. As four applications today, number one is that you just need to know God wants all of you. He wants all of you. He doesn't want half of you. He doesn't want three quarters of you. He doesn't even want 90% of you. He desires all of you. And so as we think about drawing a circle around ourselves, the key is, is to ask the question, what does the Lord want to teach me? And am I singularly devoted to God as one? What's interesting about that is that I oftentimes talk to people 
and even recently sat down with a friend and there's some different things that are going on in his life. And as he thinks about that, he might think about how emotionally he's really challenged right now. Maybe for you, it's not emotional, but maybe you would say it's financial or perhaps maybe it's uh, maybe intellectual. Like you're just struggling to learn new concepts. You're struggling to do new things. Or maybe right now it's a marriage challenge or maybe it's a... um, Maybe it's a parenting thing. I don't know what it is, but as I was talking to this this friend, I basically drew about six different squares on a piece of paper. And I said, okay, here's what I wanna know. I wanna know how you're doing in these areas. And I just want you to rate them, like rate them one to 10, one being lowest, 10 being highest. And I want you to start spiritually, and I want you to go emotionally, physically, intellectually, intellectually. I I want you to tie emotional into psychological health, kind of your mind. And then I said, I want you to also rate a couple of other areas of your life. I want to to know about your your marriage. I want to know about your parenting. I just want you to rate these things. And as he rated these things, he he, he meant all those. And, And it was interesting because, you know, as he's thinking about this, he's thinking about these particular things as individual concepts. But the problem is, is God didn't create you to have pockets of your life in which you're individually doing better in certain things than others. Yes, that's true. But it's interesting because what the Lord says, the Lord our God is one and you shall love him with all of your what? Heart, soul, and mind or in this particular case, with your might. The idea that Jesus is expressing and what Moses is writing to command the people of Israel to do in Deuteronomy 6 is to love the Lord your God with your whole person. And the reality is, is that your life and my life, if you didn't know it, is based off of concentric circles. Now, concentric circles are when you have a circle that's primary and then circles evolve from there outward. Now, the interesting thing is, is that you don't think of your life in concentric circles, but you should think of your life in concentric circles. And here's why. The center of your life should be your relationship with Jesus. Now, if, if your center of your life is not your relationship with Jesus, and it's something else, maybe it's a relationship or it's work or something else more primary, then the reality is every single circle outside of that main circle will also be out of whack. Why? Because God designed you and I in relation to him to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so as we do that and we put him in the center of our life and he's preeminent in all things, then everything flows out of that. For instance, if emotionally right now you're struggling, I would tie it back to your walk with Jesus. If you're like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine emotionally, but I'm not doing well physically, which time out real quick, it's turkey week, right? And turkey week oftentimes means it's a pass to eat all we want and we'll start next week, right? But the key is, is this, and this is where it's very difficult oftentimes is that for us in this room, we evaluate spiritual and oftentimes emotional, but there's a couple things that we don't evaluate because we see them as less important. And one of them is physical, which is the Baptist potluck or the Catholic fish fry. The reality is, is like we don't have to worry about that particular part of our life because, well, after all, it doesn't really matter, right? We can do whatever we want with our bodies. But that's not what Jesus uh, or Paul said in Corinthians, right? He says, glorify God with your body. Why? Because you've been bought with a price you're not your own. You're not your own. As a result of that, God cares what we do with the temple, right? 
So what's interesting is, is that you and I might say, well, we're doing really well spiritually. I'm gonna say I'm an eight. And then I'm gonna say that right now, emotionally and intellectually, I'm gonna say I'm a seven and I'm gonna six. And then we get to physically and we're like, hey, I'm I'm a six. And you rate all these things. And what's interesting to me is you're rating your marriage and all these things is that you cannot and should not be better in all these areas than where you are in your own walk with Christ. If you're better in all these areas and spiritually you're fumbling, then you're lying to yourself in all these other areas because all these other areas flow out of your devotion to God. And we lie to ourselves all the time. We think I'm doing really well in this area, but you're not concerned with this area. The reality is, is that if you don't know how to rate yourself honestly, then you're doing really bad even in your own walk with the Lord. See, the key is, is that the Lord, he desires all of us. He desires to be preeminent in us, which means the center. He desires to be the king of our life, the king of our heart, the king of our soul, the the key of our might and strength, even the key and the king of our mind. And the question is, is, is he? Is he preeminent in all of these things? And why should he be? Well, Paul writes to the church of Colossae, hold your spot in Deuteronomy chapter six. And if you have time to turn there, you can. If not, I'll put it for you so you can see it. But this is what Paul says to the church of Colossae regarding Christ and his relationship to being the supremacy of God and how he's preeminent in all things. Look what he says. He says, he, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That includes you and me. And if the message is about who? Me. Me. Okay, let's do it one more time because Edgewood was checked out on that. If the message is about me, then we need to know that we were created by him and through him and for him. And as a result of that, if he's before all things and in him all things hold together, if he's the head of the body and the church, if he's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, he desires to be preeminent in your life too. See, what's interesting is, is God doesn't desire to be preeminent just in our our solar system. He didn't desire to be preeminent just in creation. He desires to be preeminent in you and in me. And as he's preeminent in us, then out of that flows all of these other things. And the reason why is because Jesus was not only the preeminence of God, but it says in verse 19, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, here's why this is an interesting concept to me. God is spirit. I don't know if you realize that. He sent his son physically to be in the flesh, physical, and the preeminence of God was pleased to dwell in bodily form in Christ. Now, why does God do that? Because he is in many ways establishing this fact that you and I were created in the image of God. And what do we have? We have both spirit and what? Body. So why does God care about concentric circles? Why does he care about our spiritual walk with him? Because he wants us to be one with him in spirit. But why does he also care about the mind? and about what we eat, about how we exercise, about how we care for the body. 
Why does he care about all those things? Because he created us in his likeness. And he created us to be the whole person. And we should evaluate where we are as a whole person. You might say, well, I'm doing really good spiritually. I'm reading my Bible every day. Okay. If you read your Bible every day, but it doesn't impact the things you think about, the way you spend your money, the way that you, you uh, care for your spouse, the way that you parent, then can I just tell you that you're reading your Bible out of the wrong lens? Does it make sense? See, the reality is, is that there's many of us that we check off something, we read our Bible. The question is not, do you read your Bible? The question is, is that what you're reading impacting any sphere of your life? Because you and I are not meant to compartmentalize our lives. Matter of fact, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, with all of our, Jesus says, mind. Do you see the point? And so I would just encourage you to ask the question, does God have all of me? And what is it that I'm holding back? It's a great question. You know, we could end the message right there, but here's the deal. It doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse six and it says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, when it says on your heart, what does that mean? It means that you're not merely to go, okay, God wants all of me. You're also to say, and God not only wants all of me, but he also wants for me to delight in his truth. Matter of fact, verses four and five um, are the memory verse in Stone Point Kids this month. And so if you would take the time to memorize Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five, not only would you be blessed, but your children would be blessed too, because that's what they're learning right now in Stone Point Kids. What's interesting is, is that these words in verse six are to be written on your heart. Matter of fact, Psalm 119 is a passage about God's word. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. You'll be there for about three weeks if you read it. Um, not really, it'll take you about 20 minutes. Uh, but it, it says this in Psalm 119, verse 10 and 11. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. So you store up God's word in our hearts that I might not sin against you. Now you might ask the question, well, why is that important? Well, here's the deal. If God is the center of your life, he'll be the center of your learning. If he's the center of your life, he'll be the center of your learning. And therefore, as you learn, then guess what? You'll be able to teach. Matter of fact, verse seven is what you're doing. It says, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, what's interesting to me is that we read this in verse seven, we say, you shall teach them diligently. And we think we're to teach them diligently and them is our children. We're to teach the, them diligently to your children. So we're to teach our children the children. That's how we read that. But that's not what it says. You are to teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit and when you rise and when you come and you go. What is them? Them are the commandments. So he goes, Moses, the commandments of God, the precepts of God are something you should pay attention to. You do these, you'll live. You don't, your country's gonna die. You should learn these. You should let that be the center of your life. And not only should it be the center of your life, you shall, you shall make it the center of your learning. And as you learn it, you should make it the center of your teaching and you should teach it to your children diligently. Now, what's interesting to me is last week we heard that children are like arrows in the warrior's hands. Now, 
we kind of made a joke last week that if you want an arrow today, you order off of Amazon, it'll be to you in about three or five days, right? <laughs> Maybe next day if you're really good. Uh, but today um, is different than back then. Back then, you would have to shape an arrow, form an arrow. And you might ask the question, well, how do you do that? Well, you sharpen it. Now look at this. I'm going to put it for you so you can see it on verse 7. It says, you shall teach them diligently. Teach them diligently is the word in the Greek, shaman. And it literally means to have a whetstone and to sharpen. To teach diligently is as if you have a whetstone and you are taking a knife or an object and you are sharpening or you're honing it. So when it says you are to teach them, it means to sharpen your children diligently with the commands of God. If your children are like arrows, they are to be sharpened. And how do you sharpen them? Like you would a knife. Well, what's interesting, you're like, okay, that doesn't make any sense though. If I'm to sharpen my children like a knife, well, how do I do that? Well, you do it with the very thing that is a sword. What is the sword of the spirit? It's God's word. Interesting enough, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says this, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged, what? Sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, the joints of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the tension of the heart. Friends, how do you sharpen your children with the word of God? Why is it that God wants to be preeminent in your life? Because if he's the center of your life, he'll be the center of your learning. If he's the center of your learning, you will take and entrust to your kids what you know and what you've observed over time. And as you experience the faithfulness of God, you entrust your kids the faithfulness of God. And when you learn the precepts of God and you walk in wisdom with him and you see all the protection and the boundaries of God's wisdom in your life, you'll begin to impart those to your children. And they will begin to observe not only what you teach, but also what you show. We've heard the expression more is caught than taught, right? It reminds me of a story I heard not too long ago. A mom was driving down the freeway and she's kind of caught up in a little bit of traffic. She had a little four-year-old boy in the back and uh, he was just kind of observing some different things. He goes, mom, I got a question for you. And she's like, what's up, buddy? And she had a little time to talk because she's caught up in traffic. She said, well, I've just kind of been observing a couple things, mom. Like, I don't understand, but why is it that all the idiots that drive are only out when dad's at the wheel? <laughs> and she kind of chuckles. She goes, that's a good question for daddy. We'll have to ask that. Now, what's the implication of that? The implication of that is that we are teaching our children. Now, you might ask the question, well, what are we teaching them? Well, we should be teaching them the word of God. Well, listen, can I just help you understand one other quick concept? And so if you're a parent, you should lean in in this moment. And here's why. Because I'm going to get incredibly applicable just real quick for a couple of minutes. It says to teach them the commands. Uh, Paul wrote it to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 6, 4. He says, Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Um, he used the word in the Greek, nuthesu, which means to uh, use admonition or um, to exhort them. And the question you got to ask yourself is, okay, if we're to sharpen them with God's word, how do we do that? Does that mean that every time we gather, we're we're, we're like, we're open to the Bible and hey, kids, sit down for the next 30 minutes so I can teach you the Bible tonight and I'll do my duty. And the reality is no. Matter of fact, if you look at the application in, in the, the Shema, you see that it's when you teach them the commands when they sit in the house, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise. 
That's when you're coming and you're going. Now, obviously, we want to be careful to add to God's word, but in our day and time, we don't walk everywhere. We drive. And so as we drive, often we're in the car more than we're at home, depending on our kiddos and the stage of life. But the key is, is that you're experiencing life when you come and when you go, when you sit, when you rise, when you lay down at night, and all the moments in between, they're all teachable moments in which you are helping them evolve their own concentric circles from the primary concentric circle of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we begin to do that, we begin to put an emphasis on ways that kiddos can learn in their observation, but also in the application of God's word. For instance, as you come and you go, you need to teach your children this one truth from 2 Peter. And that is his divine power, verse three and four, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his very precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. We teach them that God's word pertains to all things, psychology, emotional challenges, financial hardships, marriage struggles, dating expectations, college choice, environments we put ourselves in, all of it is wrapped up into loving the Lord our God and obeying his commands. And more than that, as we think about me, we then begin to think about parenting and other concentric circles. I'll give you an example. Um, at our house, we do like sports. Um, I get it. Many of you are in here and you don't come from a background where sports were important. And for a lot of you, you're like, I don't see any purpose in them. And to be honest, as I get older, I can see a lot of ways that it could be a waste of time if you're not careful. I see that. Um, we like to, to watch you know, sports, football, baseball, soccer, basketball. I mean, I don't know that we're really that picky. I would say we probably don't watch a lot of badminton uh, in our house, but outside of that, I mean, we, we, we enjoy those. So um, we talk about some of that in our dialogue. Uh, we actually, uh, a couple of us in our house, me and my oldest son, we play in a little fantasy football league. If you're like, I don't even know what that means. Fantasy football is basically if people uh, catch a, a touchdown and they get a few points. Well, you get points that day for your team as well. Okay. And so you're just competing with one another and it's all for fun. And it's, you know, a lot of times it's a waste of time. Okay. Um, <laughs> so with all that said, there's a lot of you in this room that you're like, it's a waste of time and I wouldn't do that. And I would just say, Hey, praise God for the ways that God's matured, matured you. And thank you. Like, uh, there's others of us that I'm like, we like to play and I like it just because it's an experience for me to, to love my kiddo and enjoy this with him. And so, um, I don't, I don't watch it a whole lot. Now he's texting me uh, or calling me three times a weekend. If he's not right next to me and he's going, Hey, Dad, can, can I get your buddy's uh, phone number so that I can text him because there's the trade line coming up and I'm going to try to make a trade. And I'm like, yes, hey, let me call him. Let him know that he, you're about to hound him for the next 45 minutes. And then uh, and we do that. Now, here's the deal. Uh, he gives it more time than I do. But what's interesting is, is that this is a teaching moment. And you might go, how? Well, here's why. Fantasy football, beyond being a waste of time, also diminishes the value of how you see a person if they're on your team and they're not doing well. 
It happens in the same way in the workplace. You have an employee that you have a disdain for. Um, they don't work the way you think they should. Um, you have a brother-in-law or a mother-in-law in which you don't like. What happens is, is over time, if they don't produce a value in your life that you think is enough, you diminish not only who they are, but what's, if you're not careful, you'll diminish the fact that God created them in, in his image. Now, here's why what I'm talking about is relates to fantasy football and a conversation we had just a handful of weeks ago. Uh, my son is going to drop a player off his team, and he's like, I, I don't need him. He's trash. He's, just not, he's not any good. Now, what is, what is he saying? He's going, he's not any good. He's not, he's not, he's not in value to me. He's one of the lower-tier players in the league. I'm not going to be able to trade for him, and I can't use him, so I'm going to drop him. Now, if you're a fantasy owner, you're like, what's wrong with that? That happens all the time. Here's what happens if we're not careful. If we're not careful, even in this particular life experience, is we take someone and we say, they're not any good, they're not usable, and I don't have any place for them on my team. Now, that seems to be just an honest equation. They don't provide points. I need them off my team. That's true. However, as I bring it back into just a conversation with my son, I go, hey, let's talk about a couple of quick things. One, if you're in the NFL, you are in the probably top 1% of all athletes in the world. Let me just boil it down to you real quick. If we're playing backyard basketball with them, they beat us 100 to zero. Matter of fact, you might not touch the ball the whole game. Now, for you to say they're no good, one is an outright lie. Like they're very good. They're in the NFL for a reason. Second is if you're not careful, you'll diminish who they are as a person. And more than that, I care more the way that you talk about others because this young man is a gift from God and he is trying to hone his skill set and he's trying to live within his skill set. Now, the reality is what we think is not that important because he doesn't know us and we don't know him. But the reality is, is how you talk about a person here will evolve into other areas of your life. And if you're not careful, you will develop this mindset that people are at your service as opposed to you are at people's service. And so even in that, that's a great opportunity for us to impart the instruction of God. So how do I frame that? I frame that from Psalm um, 139, verse 13 and 14, just helping my kiddos know, hey, we're created as image bearers and we're all made fearfully and wonderfully in his image. As a result of that, we wanna be careful how we talk about other people. Why? Because if you talk about someone else, then you have to deal with a God who made them in his image. You see that? That's a real practical way of taking what God tells us in his word and just fleshing it out in our daily life. Now, there are hundreds of other scenarios that we could talk through, but the key is, is that you sharpen with God's word and you do it often. Matter of fact, it goes on in Deuteronomy 6 and we'll wrap up and it says, you shall bind these things, the commands on your hand as the frontlets between your eyes, on the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And the people of Israel took this literally. And they did. Um, it wasn't a metaphorical idea for them. It was a literal thing. And so the 
Pharisees later on in the New Testament would have phylacteries on their arms and on their heads. And they would have boxes of wood. And inside the box, it would have a piece of scripture. And they would carry that around with them. Matter of fact, Jesus had a little bit to say about that. And the reason why is because he, he believed that they were whitewashed tombs. He was like, you make everybody think you're good on the outside, but your heart is far from God. Which is a real challenge, isn't it? Matter of fact, when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's not saying, love the Lord your God with all your activity. He doesn't say, hey, love the Lord your God with the way you impress people. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And as you do that, then the reality is external measures are not near as important as your internal treasures. And so the key is, is for you just to realize that the people of Israel took this and they were impressing one another by having these phylacteries and pieces of scripture in wooden boxes as they went and they memorized. The challenge was you can memorize God's word and not apply it. You can know you should do something and still not do it. Matter of fact, this morning, early this morning, I was reading through um, 1 Kings and I was reading about Solomon and about how the kingdom was going to be ripped out of his hands. And you know why? Because you did not obey God's word the way your father David did. Your heart was not positioned to God the way your father David was. And the reality is there's a legacy that was being passed down. There were clear commands, even to Solomon, as to here's how the kingdom stays in the hands of Israel. You got to do these things. And guess what? You don't do as your father David did. And as a result, the kingdom is going to be snatched away. And the only promise God gave Solomon, who gave himself up to foreign women, by the way, he said, it won't be in your day and time. It'll happen in your son's lifetime. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you rather you deal with the consequences? Or would you rather your children have to deal with your consequences? Well, look, can I just help you explain something? The way our God works in the Bible primarily is that your children will face your problems. It's not something you just die and go, no, like David died a blessed man. The kingdom was well-established. It fell and Solomon ruined it because he led himself astray. As a result of that, his children and his children's children and his children's children's children dealt with a legacy that was lasting, but it wasn't centered on love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As a result of that, it was a real challenge. That's why in Psalm 1, the psalmist writes this, blessed is the Lord, or blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord and is on his law that he meditates day and night. Which brings us to this primary truth that you're not simply to put this stuff externally on you, you're to meditate on God and his word. Like that's it. It should be saturated in your life. It should move from that primary circle to every other circle. God's word should inform your marriage, your parenting, your finances, your sexuality. Uh, it should inform uh, your view of yourself. It should inform your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, uh, your intellectual stability, what you're learning, what you see, what you watch. Everything runs through this one lens of loving the Lord your God. Draw a circle around me and everything else flows out of it. 
If anything in any of these other spheres is unhealthy, you have to bring it back to your relationship and your walk with the Lord. Warren Wearsby says it this way. He says, it's much easier to wear a gold cross on our person than to bear Christ's cross in daily life and to hang scripture text on the walls of our home than to hide God's word in our hearts. If we love the Lord and cleave to him, we will want to know his word and obey it in every area of our lives. And Jesus says the words in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Verse five, if a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit, but apart from you can do nothing. The question is, is do you believe that to be true or you don't? If you can do nothing, here's what he's saying. He's saying, you'll do something because as Americans, we're doers. We have task lists, we get stuff done. Okay? We're productive people. But the reality is it's, it's a failure to do lots of things without God at the center. If you are productive as a person, think about how your productivity would grow if Christ was at the center. And more than that, think about the things you care about and how they would change. Now, maybe you're here like, okay, today's the day. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put a stake in the ground. Like I know that my heart is not singularly devoted to God. I know that I want him to be the center of my life. He's not the center of my learning and he's certainly not the center of my teaching. As a result of that, where do I go? Here's the deal. Just as Joshua said, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. It's as easy as taking a stake and putting it in the ground and saying today, today's the day and where I return to the joy of your salvation. Psalm 51 is a classic passage after David stumbled with Bathsheba, um, was confronted about a year later by his friend. Um, as a result of that, David in Psalm 51, there's an outlined psalm of his repentance where he says, Lord, would you create in me a new heart and a steadfast spirit? He asked the Lord, would you return to me the joy of your salvation? It's interesting because he didn't use the word, will you return to me the joy of my salvation? Because it's not my salvation, it's Christ and his salvation. He took you out of darkness and brought you into the wonderful light of Christ. He took you from being blind and now you're seeing. Now, as he gives you this gift of salvation through his son, Jesus, return to that and ask the Lord to give you affections for him and to recenter and recalibrate your life. And you can do that today really quickly. Now, here's the deal too. As we think about sharpening our legacy, obviously the next generation as is a part of that and is at stake. And so you've got to ask the question, not just to recalibrate you, but to help you lead the next generation. And that's where you go, okay, what's my next steps? Well, the first step, as we talked about earlier, is to meditate on God's word. And if he's the center of your life, he's the center of your learning. Are you reading God's word? And where do I begin? I got that question this week. I don't even know where to begin. I want to. Well, here's the deal. If you go to stonepointchurch.com forward slash resources, it's on our homepage. There's a tab that says Bible reading plans. And under that, there are a multitude of reading plans. You can go pick one and there are tons of resources that help you learn what you're reading. There's devotionals that go along with most of those books. It is as easy as you creating some margin in your schedule and beginning somewhere. And you could do that today as well. At the first of the year, our entire church is going to be encouraged um, to, to go through uh, the Bible with us chronologically from front to back. Now, here's the good news is uh, if you do that at the end of it, y'all ever been to CrossFit? A lot of you, you didn't get the t-shirt at the end at CrossFit, but you've been there, right? But you went a few times and then you checked out because it was really hard. That's me. I never got the t-shirt. Uh, but at the end, there's a t-shirt 
Well, look, at the end of our reading plan, we're going to reward those who have been with us for the whole journey. And it's going to be awesome. But that's going to start. Until then, you've got basically a month and a half that you can find a reading plan and start somewhere. The next step, maybe you're here like, okay, I got it. I got me and I got a reading plan, but I'm terrified of how to lead my children. I don't even know where to start. And maybe that's you. Like, I feel like I'm doing okay, but I don't really know how to gather kids. Like, it seems a little overwhelming. Like, where do I start? Do I come up with my own questions? Do I formulate some creative ideas? How do I keep their attention? That's a challenge, isn't it? Well, here's the deal. We know it's a challenge, and therefore we've created an activity guide that you can use the rest of this month and all of December. All you got to do is go to stonepointchurch.com. We made it super simple. On the homepage, you'll scroll down, and right there on the homepage is an activity guide. I don't know if y'all realize this, but today is National Monopoly Day. What? Now, look, I don't know about you. I hate to play Monopoly, so it's, it's too long. Anybody, any takers? Okay. There's another game, though. It's a card game. It's called Monopoly Deal. I love it. You can play an entire hand of Monopoly Deal in about 30 minutes, maybe 40. We play that all the time as a family. Tonight, we're going to play Monopoly Deal because it's Monopoly Day. Now, here's the deal. In that activity guide, there's a handful of questions that will go along with that guide that you can use tonight centered around a kitchen table playing a game as Thanksgiving week kicks off that helps you calibrate your life and even put the attention where it should be. Guess what? Tomorrow, much better than National uh, Monopoly Day is National Peanut Butter Fudge Day. And I don't know about you, but peanut butter fudge, a cup of coffee, and a little Jesus will go a really long way. There's a guide in there. Now listen, Monopoly doesn't work for you tonight. Maybe peanut butter fudge does. If it doesn't work for you, guess what? There's another day coming around called Thanksgiving. That's a way to calibrate our hearts. There's several days through in the end. It's not every night. It's gathering a couple of times a week. Matter of fact, if you can devote yourself to a dinner like this or to a moment like this at least once a week, you will go a long way. If, you're, if you'll increase that to two or three times a week of gathering your children over moments like this, you will build spiritual champions. We're helping you do that. The resources are available. It's up to you. Will I do something with the person inside the circle called me? May the Lord help us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and I pray that you would indeed calibrate our lives to love you. Help us, Father, to put a stake in the ground, to desire your word and to take the word that we have and use it to discipline and instruct our children in the ways of our God. Father, I pray that our kids wouldn't know us merely to be the guy who drives on the road with idiots. But the guy, that God, that they would know us to be a person who loves you with all our heart, soul, and mind. And I pray, Lord, that we would take your commandments and we would delight in them. And as we delight in them, I pray that you would teach us diligently so in turn we could sharpen and teach our children diligently. Help us to use the word of God as our guide. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.